Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Autosport International, live at the NEC. Come to Autosport International as we celebrate 70 years of the Italian supercar legend, Ferrari. Get up close to an amazing array of race and road cars. Meet motorsports legends, including Red 5 himself, Nigel Mansell. And there's more, much, much more. Don't miss Autosport International, live at the NEC on the 13th and 14th of January. Book online at autosportinternational.com. Autosport Podcast. Kvyat, Kubica, Verline, Deresta. We run the rule over the contenders for a 2018 Williams drive. While most of the seats for the 2018 Formula 1 season are already booked up, but the one everybody is still chasing is the Williams drive. Daniel Kvyat, Paul Resta, Pascal Verlein, and Robert Kubica are the four leading contenders for this. Robert Kubica, of course, will be out in the Pirelli tyre test after this weekend's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And this is the big talking point, so we thought it would be a good chance to have a look at the four drivers in contention and put ourselves in the position of Williams and decide who they should take and maybe who they will take, because it's not necessarily the case these will be the same things. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me to go over these four drivers, first is Lawrence Barreto. 
Now, Lawrence, you were a little bit late to this podcast. You've held us up a bit because you were travelling by bus. Yes, I put my faith in public transport and it let me down, so I'm sorry. It strikes me you should have just left earlier. Well, I could have also done that, but then I would have lost sleep. Next up is Glenn Freeman, autosport.com editor. He also has a travel tale because he's come in by bicycle and still in his, his Lycra, his uh, his cycling kit. Lycra's probably not the correct phrase, but uh, I wanted to create an alarming image in people's, people's Horrendous minds. Horrendous sight. But however, Glenn was on time, so Glenn... Can you explain why you managed to beat uh, beat the bus, please? Well, for the very reason that I cycle instead of getting public transport, that is much, much quicker and much more convenient. And I apologise for anyone who's haunted by the Lycra image. I can assure you I'm not wearing Lycra. Well, my rule is to try and avert my eyes from anyone who's who's been cycling, just in case of uh, an outbreak, <laughs> of, outbreak of Lycra. And that laugh you can hear is Ben Anderson, our Grand Prix editor. How did you get here today, Ben? I took the train, uh, which was delayed, but I still beat you into the office for the podcast. So... I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I think the problem was you just couldn't see me when you came in because I was in our studio setting up, doing the important job. I came in by car, so we've got, we've got a full set of uh, wow. a full set of ways to get in. Diverse, exactly, exactly. Well, we've gone over what everybody was doing to get here. <laughs> Obviously, Lawrence and Ben will be heading off to uh, to Abu Dhabi fairly shortly to to bring you all the coverage from from that weekend, but. Let's have a look at the Williams driver, starting with, shall we say, the least likely one. So we'll go for Daniel Kvyat first. Now, Paddy Lowe, when he was asked about Kvyat after Red Bull confirmed Kvyat was was out for good, said that, yeah, he was an option, he's a, a decent driver, so of course they'll have to look at him. Ben, is he a serious contender, or was or was Paddy just not ruling out somebody who had become available just in case they might come with a with a pot of gold? Yeah, I think the answer is that he's just not ruling out anyone who's available to possibly fill the seat. I think yeah, Kvyat's the outside contender of those those four you mentioned. Um, and that's fair enough. I mean, you'd look at him because obviously Red Bull for many years saw something potentially special in him. Uh, but I think he's had too many second chances. The last couple of seasons have been well below the standard you'd expect of certainly a Red Bull driver, but really any Grand Prix driver. So I think the only way he's going to get that seat is if all the other candidates fall over. I've been trying to think about this in preparation for this podcast, which you'll be relieved to hear, Ed. I have given it some thought. And when I was thinking about it, I thought, I'm going to try and make a case for every single candidate that we've got here, so all four of them. And I think the only case you can make for Kvyat, and I'm not saying this is a particularly strong one, or he certainly wasn't my first choice on this list, is that maybe after the couple of years he's had of disruption in the Red Bull system, really ever since he got demoted from... Red Bull racing down to Torosso again to make room for Max Verstappen. Maybe he just needs a fresh start and maybe everybody deserves, you know, we've said he's had too many second chances, but maybe he deserves a proper outside of Red Bull second chance and we could just see how he would perform in another environment. Part of me thinks his head might be too far gone for that at the moment and with some of the other candidates we have on this list as well already, those guys are just as deserving, if not more so, of the opportunity. But I think if you were to make any case for Kvyat, it would just be that you know maybe he needs a mental break from Red Bull and we should see what he could do in another car. I think that's a, that's a fair point. I mean, if you look at the incumbent, Felipe Massa, he went through that same experience himself. He left Ferrari after several years, kind of getting beaten around by Fernando Alonso and kind of had a, a second coming, if you like, at Williams in a new environment and got more out of himself. I think Kvyat would definitely benefit from a change of environment, being out of the the Red Bull system, which built him up so high and then shot him down. But the question is, will anybody give him that chance? And also, if he does get that chance, will he ultimately 
end up in the same trouble when he ends up trying to go into a team that's you know higher pressure or he gets a more difficult teammate maybe what we've seen over the last couple of years is too fundamental to his character to be worth taking a punt on uh, yeah I'd agree with both of you um, on that score but I think in terms of what Williams really need they need a driver who can lead the team and I don't think Kvyat can do that and I think while that is a, a benefit that can help them that's so far down the list of things that they need in that team that I, I just don't think that will really make the difference um, I understand that Kvyat's trying to find some money um, to help him get that seat Williams wouldn't say no to any money that that a driver can bring with them the trouble is he's come through the Red Bull programme and he hasn't ever had to go out and get his own sponsors because he's had that backing um, and my understanding is now he, he's he's trying to push it particularly with the promoter say for the Russian Grand Prix because they would want a Russian uh, on, on the grid but it hasn't been particularly forthcoming and, and the trouble is if he can't get it from from the promoter and the, and, and the guys who are backing him that might be a bit of an issue I think Kvyat probably ideally needs to go to a team like Force India with a reputation for developing young drivers and drivers who've perhaps been overlooked by the teams or gone through difficult times. I think Williams seat, although it would be a fresh environment for him, it's probably not the right fit in terms of where he's at in his career. As Lawrence said, Williams need a, a sort of top line driver, somebody they can focus all their development efforts around. And Kvyat, I don't think he's really had enough exposure at a top team to do that or really had enough experience of um, Formula 1 in general and also of his career going through the right kind of progression to perform that role. Yeah, I think that's fair. On the Force India thing, I'd say that actually Force India are in a position now where they're actually the type of team where the ship has sailed already for a driver like Kvyat. You know, that team's developed a long way from maybe the, the times when, you know, it had Adrian Sutil or when it took Liuzzi in a similar situation after his Red Bull years. Um, you know, they're looking now at drivers like Esteban Ocon, who's a real star of the future, and potentially George Russell will be the next one uh, on their books. So they're actually a team that have moved on from needing to maybe take drivers like Kvyat, you know, other people's seconds, you could say. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's that's a sign of the progress that Force India made, but it's not necessarily great news for, for Kvyat in this situation. Just to try and play devil's advocate a little bit on, on Daniel Kvyat, because uh, somebody has to... The one thing we can say about Kvyat is he's he's definitely not a slow racing driver. Now, lap time, a single lap time pace is only one metric and it, it would be ridiculous to focus too much on that. But if you look at his overall pace when he's with Science this year, look at our super times, which is based on the fastest individual lap. He was only slightly off Science over the year. So he's quick. He had a very impressive rookie year in 2014, which is, of course, what led to him being promoted. That first year with Red Bull was 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 decently outscored Ricardo, but that was distorted by where the reliability was. And I, I don't think we can in any way say that Kvyat outperformed Ricardo in, in 2015 because he, he quite simply didn't. Great job of performing devil's advocate here. Exactly. <laughs> Slagging Kvyat off. <laughs> For me, if we take that pace as a given, so let's say Daniel Kvyat is at least a pretty quick racing driver, certainly quick enough to be a decent midfield driver. So you tick that box. For me, the big problem is the conversion. Look at 2017, when Sainz and Kvyat were together, Sainz 48 points, Kvyat 4, on drivers who are not that that different in terms of pace. If you looked at that number in isolation, you'd say, well, clearly Kvyat's half a second, seven-tenths a second a lap slower than Sainz to, to have such a disparity, but he isn't. So what is it in his in his mental makeup, what is it about him that means he cannot execute? And this is a driver in his fourth season, so... I think if Williams were to take him, let's set all commercial things aside, which of course Williams won't be doing, I think you need a very clear reason to say, right, 
okay, the Red Bull environment was difficult, a clean break might change things, fine. But you'd need a real reason to say that was the case. I think if Williams can say, right, we think if we do X, Y, and Z with Kvyat, we'll unlock that pace and deliver results. You've got a, you've got a justified reason for doing it. The only real strong case I can make on that is he's still only 23, and he may have learned from that experience, but for me, it, it's too much of a punt. If Williams were looking for a number two driver and a bit of a punt, and they had someone rock solid in the other seat who was experienced, a fully fully rounded Grand Prix driver, if you like, i.e. not Lance Stroll, maybe a Lance Stroll five years down the line, you might think, do you know what? We could have a punt on this guy. But I, I just don't think that they're going to be able to do it. So I've done a terrible job of playing devil's advocate. You've talked yourself out of Kvyat. <laughs> well, but, but the point is, I think, let's say he was in that seat. I think if he was in a midfield Grand Prix seat in another team, there is a chance we would see a, a different Daniel Kvyat. But it's only a chance. I can't come up with a reason reason why. So for me, that those are such pronounced cons. You can have a few pros. So you could say, yeah, okay, because I think we'll, we'll try and draw up some pros and cons for everyone. You could say the mental break could help him. That's a very conditional con. He is quick. He is young. And he is actually experienced for a young driver, four full seasons. But the cons are, where where is he mentally? Because he's had a long time to try and get over the Red Bull thing. Why can't he convert after four seasons? You know, it's it's just uh, it's overwhelmingly weighted in the against, and I think unless in the pro column you can put a serious chunk of change, and I think you're talking ten million dollars plus to have any chance. I don't think he gets out of the starting blocks. Got a quick question for Ben and Lawrence. You're obviously our two uh, regular paddock representatives. Kvyat's become almost a bit of his own sideshow, I believe, this year. Where you know, there's always something happens, and you think, oh, he's gonna he's gonna loses loses cool again he's going to say something on the radio or he's going to kick off afterwards against charlie whiting or whatever when you're dealing with him though on a regular sort of day-to-day basis over a grand prix weekend is is that a running theme or are these just little flare-ups that those of us maybe a little bit further removed from it those are the things we remember but does he seem like he's got his head together the rest of the time or has he seemed a bit fragile sort of all year I'd say it's it's a mix. Last year, when he ended up dumped back in Toro Rosso after Verstappen's promotion to Red Bull, he looked gone in the head. Like every time you spoke to him out of the car, obviously you, you hear the radio messages in the car, he just didn't look like he was together at all. Uh, and I think that's at the root of all his problems. He hasn't been able to get over that setback on his own. Okay, you need support sometimes, but you still have to stand on your own two feet, and he hasn't done that. This year, he came into the season, I think, a little bit more together, uh, but he needed a strong start to the season to kind of cement that progress. You know, he had he gone back to a team he knew, but he had a different engineering group around him. There were lots of reasons why, you know, practically it wasn't working for him, but he did have to get his head together. It seemed like he'd done that, but through the season, you've seen him kind of a mix. Sometimes he's looked quite cool and together and, okay, yeah, maybe this might work. And then other times he seems really, you know, dejected and, uh, not very motivated and that that spreads through a team you know they look to their drivers even though they're very young individuals for leadership and and guidance because they're the guys in the car so you need somebody who can who can galvanize the team around him and I don't see Kvyat doing that I think a lot of the time that we get to speak to Daniel is after a session he hasn't had much time to think about what he's going to say so he's very much he's very much going to speak in the moment and I think towards the end of this season or his time in the car at least um he just wasn't afraid to hold back on what he had to say and I think 10-20 minutes later he probably regretted the approach that he took but by then it was obviously too late because when you actually spoke to him away from a media session or not when he just got out of a car he actually wasn't anything like that really he was still a bit down I, th- I think and I think generally he was down um personality wise um this year 
but I think he just let it get to him a little bit more this year. And Ben was right when he was talking about last year, he, he, he kind of it hit him hard. This year, it kind of looked like he recovered a little bit and then he just dropped again because he just couldn't get a break. I think he was quite lucky to keep his drive at the end of last year based on the performance he had, but there were the lack of options. Torosso needed a stable driving line with the regulation change. So he really needed to make the most of this second, second chance, if you like. And he just hasn't done it. I think if he'd had some good results at the start of the season to kind of bolster his self-confidence, we might have seen a different pattern. But he, I think it was just too many setbacks for him to get over. And once the results weren't coming, for whatever reason, sometimes his own doing, sometimes bad luck, I think he just got into a downward spiral and it becomes almost impossible to get yourself out, especially if the team and your paymasters lose confidence in you. Well, this was one of the things when um, when Franz Toss talked about why they let Kvyat go. Publicly, Toss backed him all the way. He, always said, he was always very positive. He was quite keen to kind of make sure he didn't give Kvyat any reason to get down publicly. But then he did just admit, he looked at the, the stats and he just said, well, he just didn't. He was just wasn't good enough. We gave him chance after chance after chance after chance. And some at some point, you're going to have to say, OK, well, we've given you enough chances. Yeah, Helmut Marko was Kvyat's biggest fan. And you looked on the outside and thought, you know, this is very un-Red Bull-like to keep giving this guy that you clearly decided isn't the guy for you in your top team extra chances to prove himself. Once Helmut lost faith, that was it for Kvyat. You know, this season, his performances, although he's been quick... They just haven't been good enough. I can think of one good race drive this year, which would be the Spanish Grand Prix recovered to the points, but he qualified last in a car that should have been competing for Q3. So he just hasn't been able to hook it together. I think Ben made a really valid point there that arguably in, in a normal Red Bull circumstance, Kvyat would have lost his drive last year. You know, Red Bull had Pierre Gasly sort of ready to go, you'd assume, having done everything he could on the junior ladder. He's a GP2 champion by this point. So it was a really interesting decision not to promote Gasly and to keep Kvyat, seemingly for the regulations. They were very consistent about that, I think, last winter, the team. But it's one thing to bring Gasly into the team and for that to be your reason to get rid of Kvyat. But then when they lose Carlos Sainz, they've gone and found Brendan Hartley, who they got rid of seven years ago, and put him in the car instead of Kvyat. So that seems to me like that's a total loss of faith. Yeah, I think also that there's probably a factor in there of next year and... and Honda coming into that team and needing somebody who's got experience working with a manufacturer and you know the difficult technical elements of the hybrid engines I know the wet rules aren't the same but I think there's some some benefit there to having Hartley who's a, a calm driver experienced obviously quick but somebody I think who can maybe help the team bridge that gap from a driver feedback point of view like Kvyat isn't going to have that experience and clearly Gasly doesn't either. I think to finish off Kvyat's chances I've got a stat here that <laughs> compares him to the next driver we're going to look at, Paul Resta. Kvyat has 26 points finishes in 72 starts, compared to Resta has 26 points finishes in 59 starts. Now, Kvyat in that has a season plus four races with a nailed-on points car, the rest of it in a marginal points car. Resta's whole career was in a team sixth or seventh in the championship in Force India in the three years he was there. And that's where we're going to expect Williams to be next year. I don't think, I can't imagine they're going to be higher than sixth in the championship. They're fifth now, Renault and McLaren every chance they'll jump them so you're looking at exactly that level of of delivery and that's why I think Kvyat's a too big a risk so let's move on to to Paul de Resta 31 year old been out of Formula One since 2013 setting aside the one-off appearance at the Hungarian Grand Prix where he quitted himself very very well a proven driver in that level of car albeit in the pre-hybrid era so Lawrence Paul de Resta I think with de Resta I think he's mainly on the list because he's a known quantity to Williams at least they spend a lot of time with him as in his role as reserve driver um and I think he would be in a good position to be a good backup 
to if they decide to go for Robert Kubica next year as someone who could they just bolt in as he did when Felipe Massa was ill earlier earlier this year. Um, De Resta um, had a chance in the 2014 car. He did a lot of stuff um, ahead of Lance Stroll um, when Lance Stroll was getting some running in that car. And then he obviously had the test in Hungary. So they've got a lot of data on him. Um, I think the, the fact that they haven't gone straight for him straight away means he's not top of the list on, on, on that score. Um, he's more of a backup, I would say, at this stage. Yeah, De Resta looks to me like the sort of benchmarking driver they're using, really. As you, as you mentioned, Lawrence, they, they used Arrested to kind of set times for a stroll to chase in the 2014 car and to help him bring along his development. How many laps did he do? Because I've heard conflicting reports that a lot of times he would go out to a track and he would sort of shake the car down, but wasn't necessarily benchmarking. Oh, I'd heard that he, he, he was kind of setting benchmark times. I don't know how many laps he was doing in doing that. I would imagine, obviously, the days are there for stroll to pound around and, and improve his own technique and understanding the car so you're not going to have Deresta you know doing tons of mileage but nevertheless it, it gives you some kind of reference they're using him as a reference for stroll at least aren't they and I feel like that's what they were doing mainly in the Kibitza test as well like here's a guy who we've used to benchmark for the other driver or to shake down for the other driver and we'll do the same here I'm not sure how serious a contender he really is unless he turned out to be mega fast compared to to Kibitza. Well I actually think that as Lawrence mentioned, maybe that the Hungary performance actually put him a bit more on the radar because obviously expectations were on the floor for that race. You, you get thrown in at basically the worst possible time on a Saturday, and as Ed said, he, he did he did a pretty good job in the circumstances. And I actually feel that in the end, that has maybe propelled him back into this discussion um, more so than he would have been without that opportunity. Because I think by the time Duresta left F1 at the end of 2013. I think we discussed it before we started recording that maybe his the end of that season wasn't great. Perhaps when he knew he was on the way out, he wasn't necessarily um, popular across the paddock. Uh, I mean, Ed can give us a bit more insight on that because you were covering F1 full time at the time. But there were always these little stories of um, Paul maybe rub, rubbing some people up the wrong way or not. Didn't always come across particularly well. And I think Paul's the kind of driver that or the kind of person that maybe. You have to get to know quite well to understand some of his, what are actually personality quirks. But in an F1 environment, it's a very busy place. People don't get to spend lots of time with each other to get to know everyone. You've got, it's part of the job, I think, to be able to come across well, whether it's to sponsors, to people inside your team, to the media. And it's actually really impressed me the way he's developed in his TV role, um, which, which shouldn't be that relevant to this discussion, but... When he started doing that, I thought, oh, this is this is going to be a challenge because, again, Paul, I don't know whether it's shyness or what, but he, he can be quite difficult to warm up sometimes. And I say that as someone who uh, who has gone pretty well with him, uh, especially in his time in the DTM. But I think he's, he's come on really well in that in that role for, for Sky. And I imagine that if he got another chance as a driver, as a regular race driver, I think the media... Um, and maybe even you know corporate guests and all the other bits and pieces that are part of the job, particularly for a team like Williams, who would be looking for a senior figure, not not another young guy to put alongside Stroll. I think Duresta would come across differently this time, and he's probably having seen the outside perspective of the paddock now. I reckon he's probably realised maybe the error of his ways first time around as well. It's not just about what you do in the car. Well, I guess you know the question or the burning question is, as Lawrence alluded to, Williams are looking for a driver to lead the team. So Ed, as someone who covered Deresta's F1 career very closely, how quick is he and how good is he technically? How good a leader would he be for Williams as a driver? 
Well, I think there's a few sides to that. The first is the the point of the personality of the character. I think Glenn made some good points there. I've had the advantage of dealing with Paul DeResta for a long time. I think the first time I spoke to him, I remember speaking to him on the phone when he was still coming out of karting before his first Formula Renault season in 2003. So I've I've known Paul for quite a long time and, and know kind of his character, his personality. He is a he is a Scot of a certain type, should we say? So and maybe it, it does take people time to onto him. But actually, he's a you know he's a he's an intelligent guy. Once you get a kind of rapport, it, he he's fine. And he will always say what he thinks, which is what you need in a in a lead driver. But I do think, but, but I do also know that with Force India, he didn't make huge amounts of friends with certain people in the team of the way. He conducted himself. Perhaps he was throwing his weight around a bit like a, a kind of a known superstar driver, should we say, would do when he wasn't quite in that position. And there were always questions about whether he could lead a team. I think in this circumstance, you're asking, is he better to lead a team against the three drivers he's up against? Now, I think we have to... There's two Robert Kibitzers, obviously. I don't want to talk too much about him, but Robert Kibitzer of old, 100%, was a great team leader. I remember when he came into Renault in place of Fernando Alonso, they, they loved having... Kibitz around because they, they they there were people in the team who actually preferred him to the way that that Alonso worked because he was able to sort of drive the team on and actually with a little bit more maturity and age he's kind of almost refined that but then of course you've got the question of whether Kibitzer is how close he is to 100% with the rest of I think the maturity the experience will help him and I think what he will do is give a good benchmark of the car because if you look at his pace 2012 when he was paired with Nico Hulkenberg Hulkenberg outscored him 63-46, but their underlying pace was pretty similar. Hulkenberg was slightly better. I'd certainly say that's the case. But you're looking at a driver here who is capable of operating at a very similar level with a similar yield to a driver like Hulkenberg. So that's something that is very, very much in his favour, in my opinion. I think he would be a consistent, reliable point scorer, and he'd give Williams, crucially, a very clear indication of the performance level of the car, which, by my understanding, is one of the things they need most of all. And I think that gives them an advantage in that regard over, over the favourite, Kibitza. Really interesting point, what you say about the comparison with Hulkenberg there, because I think the key thing we have to remember here is there is not another Nico Hulkenberg on the market at the moment. If there was a driver of that calibre around, then you'd probably say, yes, that he's going to shade De Resta in terms of your decision. But as we'll come to later, we're not sure what kind of Robert Kubitza we're dealing with here yet I don't think and I think the rest of will offer that again it's we come back to the benchmark discussion that we had earlier I think he gives Stroll um, a driver to to aim for but a driver that you'd possibly say if, if Stroll is as good as you know parts of his junior career suggested he should be Deresta is a driver he should aspire to get on terms with so I actually think for what Williams is about at the moment which is partly the development of Lance Stroll into a proper Grand Prix driver then this is this is a teammate who's going to be solid, who's going to be consistent, who's going to turn up every weekend and and deliver. I think Williams hasn't always had that from Felipe Massa in probably the last eighteen months, and that's what they need here. And they may not get it from Kubica, um, you know, if, if there are some physical limitations still there. They may not get it from Pascal Verline if he's still a bit too young or inexperienced. I think you would get it with Duresta. You'd know what you were getting every weekend. It'd be a great way to measure Stroll's progress and. To almost pick up on a point that, um, well, Jack Villeneuve sort of made that tongue-in-cheek point, didn't he, Lawrence, where he said, Stroll needs a slower teammate. I'm not suggesting Duresta's a step down as a teammate, but I feel that this is a, Duresta is a level of driver that Stroll should have to get to. And I think that can work for Williams as well. And I think that's kind of what Williams need. And the point Ed made earlier as well about looking at where Williams are going to be 
next year. I mean, I'm personally, I'm convinced that Renault and McLaren are going to overtake Williams next year. I can't see Williams overhauling Force India. So they are in a battle for sixth or maybe seventh place in the in the Constructors' Championship. And the rest is a driver who's got experience and has proven that he can perform in those cars. And when the opportunities are there, he can take them. And that's almost a, a different type of driver that you're looking for because there are drivers and I'd say Sergio Perez has been a specialist in this of maximizing opportunities in a midfield car and sometimes you need a driver who's got that skill when you're in this position in the in the sort of pecking order compared to maybe looking at a guy where you're going right well we need this superstar who's going to win us races we've seen when some of the top line guys end up in a car that isn't necessarily at it uh, they can struggle to bring their top performance every weekend Alonso is making a bit of a thing of it in McLaren, but he's almost doing it out of stubbornness. We've seen him in the past let his head drop in these situations, and Williams can't afford to have that. They can't. I think they can't afford to have this sort of downward spiral continue, and they might at least be able to shore things up if they take if they take the rest of. Yeah, and ultimately that's probably why Felipe Massa is 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 no more as far as Williams are concerned because we know that he's fast and capable of getting a lot out of that car but it's not consistent is it he's he's re- rediscovered some of his best stuff early early during his Williams period and probably the start of this year when he just come back and he liked the cars but then you see dips for a number of races where you wonder where's Felipe then Brazil his last Brazilian Grand Prix produces a mega drive out of nowhere and you think well why wasn't he doing that all the way through the season so I guess uh, if Deresta is able to deliver a level of performance week in week out that Massa, for whatever reason, doesn't always do. Then, then he's a he's a serious contender. I think Williams is just trying to decide what kind of team it wants to be, and it kind of just picks up on on your point earlier, Glenn. That if if they do go for a Duresta type of driver, it pretty much says to the world um, that they're almost prepared to just sit back for a little bit, try and get themselves sorted, and then go for it. But if they go for a driver like Kubica, it kind of what they're trying to say to the world is we you know we're still hanging in there we're still trying to be a team that can fight on our day for big for big results um and i think that's why it's taken so long that's still why we're here in the month of november still discussing what they're going to do because they genuinely don't know and this has been a problem for williams for a few years now and they've they've had obviously had a couple of years now with felipe and he's kind of done the job that they wanted him to do to start with and he hasn't really fulfilled the job that they wanted him to kind of move into and now they're in that, that same position they were back in at 14 or ahead of 14 where they've kind of, kind of got to make a big call and I just don't feel like they still really know what they want to do. It's an important moment for Williams because their big plan is to become world champions again they keep talking every year about how they're structuring the team to do that Paddy Lowe joining uh, this year was part of that that move restructuring departments hiring new aerodynamic people so they need to pick a driver I think that that fits with that model if they if they pick the wrong one then they potentially consign themselves to being you know just a midfield team which maybe they are maybe that's the reality but that's certainly not their ambition so yeah it's a it's a important moment I think in their in their journey if you like I think picking Kubica in terms of that argument being a show of ambition that only works if he turns up next year and really delivers if if next year he he can't get to the level that you know he once was, or even an acceptable sort of Grand Prix driver level, then the question is going to be: Did you just pick him for the sort of the PR boost, or the hope of bringing in some sponsorship, or just you know again doing it for the wrong reasons and not for what he can do in the car? I think there is a risk of that, but we'll delve into that in more detail 
later. But the last point I think I would make on this is this is all kind of Nico Rosberg's fault, isn't it? Because otherwise Williams would have Bottas in the other car still and we wouldn't be having this discussion. Well, let's just summarise Paul de Resta. I think he's a good candidate. So pros, known quantity, consistent ability to deliver. He has experience. He's going to be a good benchmark. We, we know that. And the cons, there's a bit of history there with de Resta and maybe he's not going to be a, a superstar of the future because he is he is a driver who is uh, who is 31. He's not a 21-year-old who's going to be here for for 15 years so it kind of works works a little bit against him but personally I think I think Paul Dresta is a, a very very valid candidate and I think there's a few people who have let the fact they didn't necessarily gel with him especially well color the way they've looked at the performance level which I think he's a, he's a very decent Grand Prix driver and remember were we in an era where drivers were picked based purely on merit I think he would never dropped out of Formula 1 it was a budgetary thing so I think I think the rest is a strong candidate so let's move on to Pascal Verlein the Sauber driver he's had the misfortune of spending his whole Grand Prix career in the worst car which isn't particularly helpful so he's only had three <laughs> points finished in 38 starts but <laughs> he, he's had, but he has also outperformed all of his teammates in that time Rio Harianto Esteban Ocon who was dropped in mid-season at Manor and Marcus Ericsson Ben Anderson Verlein doesn't get talked up a great deal does he sort of the the second Mercedes junior but his high points are certainly excellent. Yeah, it's a it's slightly unfair characterisation, really. I mean, if you compare him to Esteban Ocon during their races as Manor teammates at the end of last year, OK, Ocon came into the team mid-season, so he had the, the disadvantage compared to Verline of familiarity. But Verline was the stronger driver by every measure. He was faster uh, than Ocon. No, in the way he wasn't. Brazilian GP. Oh, OK, yeah, so... I mean, across the, the trend suggested that he was the stronger driver. Um, and we, we've seen this year just how good Ocon has, has become at Force India. You know, he's now touted as a top talent, somebody maybe destined for a Mercedes driver in the future. Verlein is capable of being as good as that. Um, the, you know, the main reason he, he didn't get the Force India driver ahead of Ocon is to do with you know, issues with his character, the way he, he conducted himself in the team when he tested with Force India. So um, similar kind of drawbacks to Duresta, you might say, in that in that sense. But you've got a very, very capable driver who hasn't really been able to show what he's capable of consistently because, as you mentioned, he spends most of his time in the worst car and are fighting only his teammate. Um, of course, the other pro for Verline is that he comes with Mercedes backing and Williams is a team that, I mean, by my estimation, they've got a 10 million hole to fill because they got that payment from Mercedes to take Bottas for this year. That's going to disappear. Um, so some kind of discount on their engine that would come with signing Verlein would balance the books. So you kind of fill both criteria with Verlein. You get a very, very fast, capable driver with a lot of potential, um, certainly Ocon standard, um, with a, a budgetary boost as well. There's a very strong case for Verlein, actually, and when I was weighing them all up, he was almost the driver that I sort of landed on as as my choice. Um, I think you can make a Red Bull comparison here and you can be harsh or generous. And I think if you're being harsh, you can compare him to Kvyat in that there are, there's another superstar guy in his stable now, in his junior stable in Ocon. And Force India had, as far as I'm aware, a free choice of those two for this year and they went for Ocon. And my feeling then was that if Mercedes thought that was the wrong choice... I know Force India have said that Merck didn't influence this, but if they really thought that was the wrong choice, they could have twisted Force India's arm to go another way with it. So that tells me that two teams who've had a real chance to look at 
those two drivers have already chosen the other guy. Like I say, if you're being harsh, that puts him in the Kvyat position. If you're being generous, it potentially puts him in the Carlos Sainz position, where Sainz got um, overlooked uh, when Verstappen got promoted to the top Red Bull team. But they stuck with Sainz, and he has proven himself to be, a, a, I believe, a, a future top-class Formula 1 driver as well. So you could argue that if Verline's in that camp, then you stick with him. You put him in a slightly better car, and you hope that he shows Sainz-like levels of progression. And that could be exactly what Williams needs here. And I know that one of the reasons people have written Verline off is supposedly the Martini deal needing a driver over 25. I think you guys have both chased that one up. We believe that Martini have basically said, look, if the right guy is under 25, we can we can work this out. Yep, and it also helps that the Martini deal comes up ends at the end of next season. Uh, so in terms of flexibility and kind of negotiation on that point, um, it's it's just a little bit easier at this stage. Um, you're right in that it isn't so much of a problem now. It's only a few territories that's an issue, isn't it? Yes, but obviously at one point in the deal they wouldn't have wanted to cause a, a problem. But now you're at the other end of the deal, so it's not it's not so much of an issue. My point on Verline is that I think when he joined Sauber, he would have been expected to have beaten Marcus Ericsson comfortably and he hasn't really done that this year yes he's got the two points finishes and he scored all their points but he hasn't done it as convincingly as I think everyone had hoped he had done and as it's already been mentioned Esteban's really performed obviously it will be in a better car but he's just performed and he's taken all his opportunities we've also got George Russell coming through as well now so he must be thinking oh am I going to get swallowed up here he could look at it one way as we said earlier he's always been in the worst car so you can only do the best that you can in the worst car and it's just unfortunate that there aren't seats available that, you know, I think if Mercedes could find him a seat, they they, they would do. Um, but it's just we're running out of time and he's running out of seats. And I think he kind of does. He kind of does see that. Well, I think Verlein has done a good job in the in the Sauber this year. I think it says a lot more about Marcus Ericsson's progression that it's been so close in qualifying. Well, between Ericsson's them. never been a slow driver, has he? That's never been his problem. No, it's just more stringing it together consistently. But we have to remember also that Verlein had a really difficult start to the year. He was injured in the race of champions. He couldn't test properly. He couldn't do the first few races because of the lack of fitness. So his his key period for getting to know a new team for him didn't really happen. He's had to do that on the fly. Ericsson's well established in that team and his sponsors part own the team, as we understand. So he's got a lot of there's a lot of benefits that Ericsson has there that Verline doesn't. Um, but as you mentioned, he, he's the one who's taken the opportunities to score big when he's had them, that drive in Spain was excellent. He was holding off faster cars genuinely in the race to to score the best result they've had this year. Uh, and also, he's had a few technical problems. If we remember, he was, had, I think, between Austria and Spa, he was having continual problems with the the old Ferrari engine and the I think the, the turbo and MGOH. And they changed so many components. Finally, in Monza, he got a fresh engine. In the race, he was back on normal form and then recently he's had problems with the chassis they've been trying to chase aero parts floor parts suspension parts brazil he got all new parts in lieu of a chassis change because the spare one they had wasn't up to scratch and again he was ahead he was back on form in terms of pace so i think when it's been a fair comparison verline has been the faster driver he's just not had a very easy season and again that's made it difficult for him to show what he's really capable of at a key time I think it's also worth mentioning how he gets on with the team because we've obviously mentioned that Force India picked him over in terms of the personality. But he's very well liked at Sauber um, in terms of the feedback, just the way he gets on with people. And I think that's, if he can try and get out to the paddock 
um, that kind of perception of him. I think that's really important because we've said talked about how Duresta that's really hurt him. But in terms of the way that he works with the engineers, what people think of him, he, he generally just seems happy and it's all very, very positive. And that, that is one of the key concerns that's come out of Williams when you, you talk about Verline. They're worried that for the reasons that Force India didn't choose him, that's what they're going to get, this kind of you know driver that's going to piss everybody off, basically. And I always thought that was a bit of a harsh judgment on Verline. I, I don't see that kind of character. Yeah, he's quite, you know, he can be quite assertive and um, he's quite honest and says what he thinks. And, you know, maybe people expect a bit more humility from a from a young driver. But, you know, maybe Forsini just caught him on a bad day when he tested with him. Maybe he was just, you know, not himself because everything else we've seen subsequently suggests that there's a slightly skewed impression of him. But... Now, impressions count for a lot, so it's down for, down to Verline to change that perception, as you say, in the paddock. And we have to remember as well that Verline, while young and inexperienced, he is a DTM champion. So he's got some experience of being kind of a leading driver in a category and within a team. So perhaps there's a little bit of the uh, the young upstart was being, being held against him. I, I think from what I hear, he didn't always cover himself in glory and he needed to just dial it back a bit. But I think he's understood that and the way he's got on with Sauber this year it makes him a again a, a very strong contender and there are quite a few analogies with the rest of, I think as was mentioned in, in that regard he's certainly a quick driver so in the pros you've got you know he's quick Mercedes links could be good commercially he's got someone who's got a long future and as a benchmark do we think that we know what sort of level Verline's at so if Williams put Verline in the car will they know where it's performing at? Yeah, I think, as I said earlier, if you put Verlon in the car, you are going to get Ocon levels of performance. So, okay, Ocon is, as Verlon is, they're both drivers who are still developing and, and growing, but we know that they're already at a very high level, uh, high enough that Mercedes backs their careers. So um, I think for Williams, that will be a, a very good benchmark in terms of where the car's at. I'm not convinced you'll quite get Ocon. I think everything I've seen in Verlon's career, including Junior, I think said Oc- Ocon is a... A seriously mega driver. I said similar, not the similar, same. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's worth it's worth stressing that. Uh, so I think sort of the cons for Verline are he is the the sort of number two Mercedes Junior, and obviously George Russell, as Lawrence said, is coming up on the rails. There is this question of whether he his ultimate potential is is a, as, as a mega star because I, I guess if you're comparing Verline and Deresta as contenders, then if you want to take Verline, it's because you think his ultimate potential is greater than the current level Deresta will be able to to achieve if we think that's fair but I think Verline's a Verline's a, a strong candidate any other negatives to him do we think well and the characters as I think in the sum up there we didn't mention yeah there's the, the question mark over his personality and how he fits with the team similar to Deresta has he has he learned enough since that first became an issue to to for that to not be a problem anymore or will it still manifest itself yeah certainly but I think Verline again who's a driver who's not talked about quite as much as he maybe should be he him and Deresta actually and you can make similar strengths and integrity of of cases which of course brings us on to Robert Kubica 32 years old last raced in Formula One 2010 now we have to look at Kubica in a completely different way I just want to very very quickly sum up the old Kubica fantastic incredible driver did did great things able to lead a team the full package i think had that rally crash not happened on the ronda di andorra rally in february 2011 he'd either be a world champion by now or he'd be someone who should have been a world champion by now in circumstances frustrated him but i want us to put that driver to one side because not only has he been out of formula one for a very long time 
his arm did suffer very serious injuries. The, the mobility is limited. There's no two ways about it. That That's okay. So with him, we have to ask, the key question is, how close to the old Kibitza, the 100% Kibitza, is, shall we say, new Kibitza? Yeah, it's, it's the million dollar question, isn't it? I think probably all of us would say if Robert Kubica is capable of being at the same level in the car as the old pre-accident Robert Kubica, you'd pick him for the team absolutely 100%. But if that time. was the case, we wouldn't be having this discussion because I think he'd be in the Renault by now. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, he, Renault had this opportunity. They've been through this this assessment process that Williams are going through now already. They ran him in an older the car at Valencia and he did really well. Um, that was, I think, started out just as a, you know, I want to... You know, put these demons to rest and just get back in a Formula One car and prove that I can drive one again. And it evolved into something more, you know, more serious than that. Or, you know, could he come back? Could he actually race again? Renault had the opportunity to test him in a current car in the summer at Hungary. The test was inconclusive. They say they needed more time to to fully understand his potential. So there are question marks genuinely. And they they in the end they've gone for Carlos Sainz Junior as their race driver. So we can only really say that as things stand Renault look at Kubica and all the assessments they've done at him and they feel that he's below the level that Carlos Sainz Jr. is at at the moment which you would say is Red Bull's backup option so that's not the Robert Kubica of old is it certainly Uh, now Williams are going through the same process they've tried him in an old car they feel that there's enough there that they need to stick him in the current car so we're kind of going through the same process again the key I think will be this Abu Dhabi test because Kubica said when you were there Lawrence but after his test with Renault in Hungary, that he needed another day to put everything he'd learned into practice. Doesn't everybody? Doesn't everybody. Now he's got that chance. He, he's no excuses, is there, at the Abu Dhabi test. He's had a run in a 2017 car. He's got a feel for how things work generally. So if he delivers in the Abu Dhabi test, then I guess the drive is his because of all the other things you mentioned, Ed, that he can bring to the team and his reputation and, and everything else. But if he doesn't, then we'll know that really this is a step too far on, on the point of Renault's perception that he's below Carlos Sainz I, I can see that on one side of it but on the other side I genuinely just think they ran out of time and they had to make a decision and at that maybe at that point based on what they had that was what they felt I, I've, I got, I've got to cut across on that point and say if you put someone who there's a hint of them being a superstar in the car like that regard you find a way don't you I mean if uh, the old Kibitza so it's not just oh well we've run out of time. I think if you've if you see a trajectory that could get be at that point, you'd have to give them more chances and say you know we could have a world champion caliber driver here. Yeah, they could have put him in the test for Abu Dhabi, couldn't they? In theory, they could have said, "Oh, we need another day to assess you properly." Yeah, I'm slightly confused by the we ran out of time thing. You know, the the, the science opportunity obviously presented itself when the break in the contract with Renault came up to take the Honda deal. But yeah, I'm still of the opinion that if they thought there was something there, they would hang on for it. And as we've already discussed briefly, Carlos Sainz is a fantastic Grand Prix driver. And I agree with Ed's assessment. And I think you said it as well, Ben, that clearly they've decided that whatever's there in Kubica isn't of the level that Sainz is already at. So remember, this is a loan of Sainz at the moment. It's not even like they've signed Sainz and they've got him for the next 10 years to build a team around him. For all they know, they might only have him for for 18 months um so the science deal did present itself and it was some good opportunism i think from renault but they wouldn't have needed to do that or need or felt like they were backed into a corner to have to do that if they were convinced by kibitzer and 
at that point, they'd had as good a look as anyone at him and what he's capable of. And as we say, Williams are now going through the same process. And I actually have sort of the same suspicion now, which is that if Williams had seen enough in the 2014 car already and from everything else they've been doing, all the assessments, I think he'd have the drive already. I think the fact that they need, they feel the need to put him in the 2017 car suggests it's a marginal decision. I think they realised they couldn't learn enough by running in the 2014 car. I think um, Massa came out with those comments and they didn't go down very well. <laughs> um, but I think there's you know an element of truth to what he was saying. And so why wouldn't you just stick him in the car when you've got that car to do it and you can then... I know it wasn't called a shootout, but you can run him a day before you run someone else in the car and compare data. And um, and then you, you stick him in the car in Abu Dhabi the first time that you can do in a, in a 2017 car. There was no point ever, I don't think, putting him in a Friday practice. I think put, get him in for a full day and do it. And I can see why Williams want to do it. They have to be sure. Like, they have to be 100% sure they want to do it. And I think that's part of the reason why Renault didn't do it. I, I take your points. I, I think I'm against all three of you here in terms of the Carlos Sainz-Kubitz decision and how it was how it was put together. But I think on the, on the Renault side of things, they're in a different place. They don't need a world champion driver right now. They need a driver who's consistent who can get them points regularly so they can keep going up on the upward trajectory. Kubica could have a great day one race, but then he might not be great for the next two races. So I think they went for consistency. But I don't think that that means that Robert Kubica doesn't, isn't good enough to come back to F1. And that's why Williams are doing all these tests at the moment. But isn't that exactly what Williams needs, a driver that is consistent and can deliver every time? Because if they don't want a driver that can do every race at that level, they've got Felipe Massa already. So... Uh, Signing Kibitza, you would have to be a step up on that. That's my kind of concern with Kibitza. You, you, you know, we've all touched on the the Renault comparison with Science. You know, they're a team again that's trying to build up and challenge for the world championship in the future. They want the best driver available on the market to bolster their options to push Nico Hulkenberg. They've clearly felt, with a limited data set, that Kibitza isn't at that level, or maybe isn't capable of getting to that level quickly enough. So suddenly, you're looking at drivers below the Carlos Science Junior level, which is midfield Formula One driver and Massa is already capable within that group although not consistent so Kibitz has got to be more consistent than Massa in the car otherwise it's not a step up for me um, so I, I, everyone would love to see Robert Kibitz come back I think because it would be a great story because of how good he was before and what a loss it was for Formula One to, to not have him on the grid but he needs to be able to perform it's, it's not good enough to just have someone in the car because it's a nice story they have to be capable of taking the team to where it wants to be and I guess we'll find out a lot more in this Abu Dhabi test but it's crunch isn't it either Kubica can do it or he can't I don't think you can afford to wait a season or two to find out. The point you made there about the the value of the nice story I think this is at the crux of it for Williams because Williams I don't think there's going to be great on-track stories for next year unless they surprise us with with the package as we've said we're thinking sixth seventh you know if if Honda gets his act together, Toro Rosso could even lead them. So almost in a worst case scenario, you could be you could even be talking about worse. So I think if you're Williams, what would appeal is that good story element because it would be a brilliant story. And just on a purely human level, I'd love to see Robert Kubica back. I think he's a brilliant driver. He's a really likable racing character. He's there's no there's no side to him. He's just straight down the line. Loves racing. There for the right reason. So so that's brilliant. There is a commercial side as well. There is some money with them, I think, to a greater or lesser extent. All the drivers associated will have to have some kind of commercial package, even if it's modest. But there's also this extra thing of making Williams prominent. Lawrence mentioned earlier the Martini deal coming to an end. 
Uh, it's a five-year original deal, so 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. So they're looking for a new title sponsor. And if you want to get a title sponsor, you want to have as much exposure as possible. It's quite hard to get exposure when you're down in seventh place. It's almost like they've had their upward curve. When they signed Massa, it, I called it at the time a marriage of convenience because Massa was kind of in a, in a different way to bits of damaged goods. And Williams was a once great team that needed to try and have a, a driver at a decent level, but they couldn't pick from the ones everyone else would get. They were well down the queue. And almost like Williams had its up curve and then down curve to the point where it needs to get a new title sponsor. So I think that's where Kibitza becomes very, very strong. And I suspect if I was sat here running Williams now from a commercial around perspective, I'd be saying, yeah, actually, Kibitza's the guy to take, provided he can deliver a, at an acceptable, solid midfield driver level. It's a big risk, though, isn't it, if you're making that that case on the exposure commercial signer sponsor ground, because all the teams, certainly the the independent teams, if should should we say, are struggling to find sponsors. You know, the much promised McLaren title sponsor still yet to materialise and probably won't materialise next year, even though it was planned to. So, Williams, big big punt for Williams to take to say, "Oh, we're going to sign this driver because it'll be a great story and we'll get lots of headlines." and hope that that then leads to a sponsorship signing further down the road. That also makes it less of a great story in a way. Like I'm completely on board with how great it would be for Kubica to come back. It, when he had the accident, the rally accident, it is one of those moments where you do remember where you were um, when you got the news. You know, I was standing watching a, a non-league football team, so I'll give a shout-out to old Bramstonians. Uh, uh, and I was just, I got a text message um, saying, oh, what's going on with this? And then you start looking into it and you're thinking, oh, no, this is... This is awful, especially because the first test of 2011 had gone very well. He was quickest. And at that point, you're thinking, we're never going to see him in a Formula One car again. So the fact that we're here having this conversation is brilliant. I would love to see him back in Formula One. But I want to see him back in Formula One if he's at a level that deserves it. And I do think that if Williams take him for the commercial reasons, one way somebody put it to me was, if he's not quite quick enough, it will become about, does his is his money enough to make up for the shortfall in pace uh, we haven't actually touched on the fact that I said this was all Nico Rosberg's fault earlier for retiring from F1 um, he's obviously involved with Kibitza and I think that is for commercial reasons he's pushing we understand to to help put the package together but if they've taken him for the what we're deciding are the wrong reasons so for because it's a nice story and because it might get them a sponsor down the line that then means that Robert and in a way those of us who want to see him back in F1 are potentially going to be subjected to seeing a shell of the former man in an F1 car, not producing in the way that we know he used to be capable of. And I don't really like the idea of him just being a midfield driver. I think the novelty would wear off very quickly. A few people have made the comparison to Michael Schumacher's comeback, where you know we never saw the Schumacher of old. And that was that was a great story at first, especially because it was back with Mercedes, you know, the team that had sort of groomed him for Formula One and then he'd gone off and done his own thing and never raced for them. And he comes back when they come back as a factory team. But again, when we were three years into that, eventually Mercedes went, you know what, there's a chance to sign Lewis Hamilton, we'll take him instead. I wouldn't really like to see Kubica come back under-deliver to what are going to be sky-high expectations and then just get cast aside again. Yeah, if Williams signed Kibitz, it has to be for the right reasons. You want him to be in that car because he's the best driver available, capable of delivering the best performance available week in, week out. We don't want a driver who's doing a great job for a guy who's got only one fully functioning arm or a good job for a guy who's been out for six years. He's got to be at the right level. 
Otherwise, as Glenn says, it just becomes uh, not a dull story, but it, it becomes it becomes problematic the longer it goes on. You know, he has to be. People are going to expect the Robert Kibitzer of old, so he has to he has to be as close to that level as possible for it to be viable. I think. I think the the biggest thing going for Kibitzer is he's kind of got the the, the all round package. He's got the best all round package off the four people that we've got here that we're talking about. Because I think even if he isn't miles quicker than the other three, he's got the other things of the, the likability, the the great story that it could potentially be, um, and obviously the PR opportunities. I think it's worth personally. I think it's worth giving him a chance, and then you put you create a situation where you've either got a Verlaine or a Duresta in a reserve role, and then you slot him in. And I, to be honest, I think Robert would probably agree to that kind of um, element in his contract where he wants to have a go. He wants to see if he can do it, but he'll be the first one to say, "I think," when he realizes he can't do it, and then would probably step aside and move across. So I think there's, I think there's more to it than this and I think that would be Williams's best bet. But Williams need the points don't they? Like we've already talked about how they're very likely to slip back in the Constructors' Championship from present fifth position next year having slipped back already from third in the first two years of the well, V6 let, rules. So let's get, just quantify that because go on. based on 2016 payments the column two payments third is $41 million fourth 36 fifth 33 sixth 31 seventh 25 eighth 19 ninth 16 so you see that that kind of sliding scale. So they're going to lo- they're going to potentially lose twelve million or more based on those figures if they finish seventh or eighth in the championship next year. Going on uh, fifth versus seventh is eight million. If they if fifth versus eighth is fourteen million. Yeah, so it's a, it's a substantial chunk of money they're likely to lose anyway, even if the driver they have is getting the most out of out of the car. So. I feel like commercial considerations in the short term are going to be quite important to this decision um, because of how much money Williams stands to lose when you project their performance into the future. I can see the logic of what Lawrence put forward there about, you know, take the punt on Kubica, um, but have one of the other guys in reserve. But what concerns me there is, is the outcome that Lawrence presented as well, where I hate the idea of Kubica getting to the point where he does have to either choose to walk away or get dumped mid-season. But also, if you do do that, picking up on Ben's point about you need the points, Verline or Deresta, if they're the guys you choose as a reserve, have potentially lost half a season to get up to speed in the car. And then suddenly those guys have got to go, well, you're thrown in at the deep end. You've got to outperform the guy we've just dropped, who everybody loved and was the great story. Uh, But we've also, you've had anywhere between maybe eight or ten races out of the car. Everyone else is getting up to speed. You've basically got no testing, getting there and work it out. So Williams could shoot themselves in the foot twice if they go down that route, and I almost feel that if they go for Kubica, unless it's a disaster, you've kind of got to stick with it because I I don't think they'd be any better off uh, dropping someone else in mid-season unless they can do something like Renault did where you poach someone strong from elsewhere. But again, I'm not sure Williams, they're not a manufacturer team like Renault are, I'm not sure they would ever be in the position of power to be able to execute a move like that. Yeah, there's a big risk unless Kubica is great and consistently so that it just blows up in your face even though there are so many reasons why it would be wonderful to happen so you have to be really sure that it's going to work to take that leap I think because of the downsides you mentioned they're so severe and I think probably that's why Renault again even with their limited uh, amount of information couldn't afford to take that risk you know where they're at in their journey trying to build up into a credible team that can maybe challenge for the championship in the next few seasons they felt that they couldn't take the risk on Kibitza and Williams has to be very careful about that risk too 
just to sum up on Kibitza, what do we know about his overall performance level? His lap times have been decent in tests, so I don't think single lap pace is a major issue. But the one thing we can't be naive enough to say is that he will be at 100% because the arm is a limitation. There is a reason why all of the Grand Prix drivers on the grid have two fully functioning arms, that they work extremely hard to do specialist exercises to train to make sure they're the best. It's not Kibitza's fault that he's in that condition. It's a real shame for him. But there is a there is a disadvantage there. So what do we know about his performance? Not just pace, but consistency, ability in traffic when there's lots going on. What, what do we actually know? Well, Renault were very coy about revealing details of the test he did with them in Hungary, um, except to say that they needed more time with him in the car to make a final judgment about his potential. I mean, it was clear, I think, Lawrence, you remember from the day itself that he didn't he didn't quite get to do all the performance running that he wanted to do because of red flags at the end of end of the day. So there's a question mark there about how much lap time he could actually get out of the car. Um, and then Renault ceased their interest and went on to do something else. So I guess the, the real answer is we don't actually know what Kibitz's performance level is yet. It's not clear. No, and I think Williams have taken the same approach as Renault. So when they did their 2014 tests, um, they didn't really say much about what, um, or they wouldn't allow anyone to say anything about what um, the performance levels were between the, the two drivers. I think Ben's right. I think in Abu Dhabi, um, performance, that's what they're going to have to focus on. They're going to have to focus on performance runs during that day because that I think that's one of the key questions they haven't quite answered. I think they've re- they've resigned themselves to the fact there's going to be some things they'll, they won't be able to answer until you put them in a racing situation. But I think the performance side of things is the one thing that they really want to get out of the Abu Dhabi test. And we do know that Kibitza had to use a modified, specially modified steering wheel to do the test with Renault in Hungary to have all the functions performed by the left hand. So there's a clear limitation there just from the fact that he had to have a, the car specially modified. And I was told that in the tests he did in the old Lotus at Valencia, he was quicker than Sergei Sorokin, who's been doing some practice sessions for Renault as a reserve development driver. So that's a, the benchmarking we've got, really. We've got a driver who Renault believes is quicker than Sorokin, who's a GP2 race winner, uh, and a driver they're not sure about in the current spec cars, which are obviously heavier and and more uh, more powerful and have more downforce. And that's all we know, really. I did hear concerns from Renault about the fact the onboard showed just how much work the left arm was having to do, unfortunately, which is a concern. The comparison for me, because I covered the World Touring Car Championship for a few years when Alex Zanardi was in it, who, in the right circumstances, could turn very quick lap times, but there were points where there just weren't enough bits of him to do everything that needed to be done. Now, Zanardi's problem are very different to Kibitza, so I don't want to make say they're exactly the same situation but if there is a a limitation a physical limitation it's in the high stress moments that it really shows and the thing I'm interested because I think actually Kibitz's pace I don't think Kibitz's pace is going to be massively problematic certainly not over a single lap and his consistency apparently on the longer runs was was okay so I don't think it's like he's going to be terrible in that regard I think he's going to be I think he'll be fine but it's who knows in a in a first corner situation with all sorts of thing going on when you're making a last cast dive up the inside. I don't think even Robert Kibitza knows, let alone Williams, let alone us. That's that's the big problem for me, and that's what makes him a a big punt. We know that he's put a lot into this comeback as it's gathered momentum. Amount, yeah. You know, he's he's really worked on his fitness. That like he's ready to do it in his head and in his own body as much as he he can do. But it's like you say, 
you know, if his long run pace is okay and his consistency is okay and his one lap pace is fine, we don't want that. We want exceptional. That's Robert Kubica. We remember an exceptional driver. We don't want to see Robert Kubica, who's a degraded version of his old self. That's the the big problem. I did I, I did an interview with um, esteemed driver coach Rob Wilson for one of our old sport performance supplements, and he touched on uh, Robert Kubica as part of a theme to do with drivers making comebacks from serious injury. And he said the one doubt you would always have is how is Kubica going to react in those high stress situations where there are cars either side, you get bumped, you've got to react to a sudden hit or going over a curb. Can he catch the car in the same way as other drivers or as he would want to? And it's not only the physical capability to do that, it's also the doubt it would put in his own mind when he's in the car. Can I allow for every situation that I it's might find myself It's when you're down to in? reflexes and instinct, isn't it? That's And that is the thing, like Lauren said, you can't test that. You're only going to find out probably on the run to the first corner in Australia next year. I just wanted to pick up and put Ed on the spot very briefly. When you said um, how much work the left arm was having to do, is that a very generous way of saying he might have been driving one-handed in certain situations? The phrase that I heard a few times was that he was basically driving one-handed. Now, Lots of people have said that. Yeah. Now, it's been a while since I've been with Kibitza. I have, I did a few years ago, do an interview with him, spent a fair bit of time with him and got a good understanding for what he'd been through, the repeated operations. It is a serious limitation, unfortunately, and it does inhibit him in his everyday life. You know? I've heard people describe his right arm as skeletal. In places, it is. I mean, I, I was surprised. Uh, when I spent that time with him, both talking to him on and off the record, I felt extremely sorry for him, for what he'd lost, and he was kind of stuck with it, with it, trying to work out what, work could be done to the arm to try and make it better. He had all these surgeries. It took a, it did take a serious toll on him. He's had some he's had some tough times. Somebody basically who lived for motorsport to have that taken away from him. I sort of got the sense that there was this acute knowledge of what he'd he'd lost because of a an accident on an inconsequential rally. And at that time he talked about the fact at that stage he'd never been back to a race circuit. He talked about being invited to a DTM round by Toto Wolf. And he said he drove to the circuit and he could hear it and he just couldn't go in because it was just that, the psychological effect. So we mustn't underestimate the psychological effect that this has had on him and the effect that could have on the the ability to subconsciously process. Because all of his single-seater race driving will have been based upon having two fully functioning arms. And if you're trying to... It's like if you're carrying an injury in any sport and you're thinking about it, it moves it out of the subconscious processing, which instinct is basically a, a shorthand word for, and makes you think about it and you can't react so quickly. And that, that's what... That's what worries me. So, Do you think there's a flip side to the Kibitza situation psychologically in that now he's committing himself to a comeback and doing everything he can to be a Formula 1 race driver again that it's going to make it harder for him to accept being told that it's not possible or if it's not possible? And people say that he's very honest with himself, but if he found it so hard even to return to a racetrack because of what he lost before. Will he, on the flip side, find it hard to let go now that he's fully invested in trying to make a comeback? I think it would be, I'd, I'd be guessing with what I say. I'd, I doubt if even he can be sure about it. You know, none of us are masters of our own of our own minds, really, are we, unfortunately? The one thing that I do know about Kibitza is no matter what he's been through, he is a very, very, very determined character. And what I will say, I'm 100% confident that if anybody can pull this off, it's Robert Kubica. So, so let's just so let's just look at the pros and cons. He was once a brilliant driver, and at heart, he is still the same 
great driver, albeit with a with a limitation. We know he can lead a team. We know he's a we know he's a, we know he's just a great racing driver, or at least he was. So those are all strongs. Plus the commercial side, the story side is positive for Williams. The cons are we really have no idea what's going to happen in a race situation, and I don't think anyone does, including the team, including Kibitza. And there's no question in my mind that Kibitza will not be as good. Like you could say, when he was in his prime before the accident. He was at an Alonso level. He was at Hamilton level. No question. I can't believe he's capable of still being at that level. So it's it's where is it? Is it is it ninety nine point nine percent? Is it ninety nine percent? Is it ninety eight percent? And how does that feed you back in? Because the difference between the worst driver on the Formula One grid and the best is not big. So it's a question of where he slots in compared to a Deresta, a Verline, or a Kvyat. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. So I think those are pros and cons. So to wrap up. I think we're all going to have to put our Williams team boss hats on uh, and decide who we're taking and why. What's our what's have you? Let's uh, let's start with Lawrence Barreto. Lawrence, you've got to decide now. What does Williams do based on what you know now? Uh, I would I would sign Kubica, um and then I'd sign Verline as the reserve driver. Um, I I would choose Kubica because as we've talked about, if Williams end up being the sixth, seventh, eighth best team, they're not going to be regularly scoring points, which means on the days that they get a chance to score points. They need someone who can definitely take the opportunity. And I think Kubica, the ultimate potential, offers them the best bet on that score. So I would go for Kubica. So Lawrence Barreto has Robert Kubica with Pascal Verlein's reserve on standby. Ben Anderson. Not having, obviously, access to all the absolute data on Kubica. Caveat, caveat, caveat. caveat. If, if Kubica was 100% and close to his old self, even if he was slightly off the great driver you mentioned, then I would sign Kubica. But I think realistically, there are too many question marks over him. I don't think you're going to get much difference between Kubica and the other candidates based on the degradation that we expect in him. So I would sign Verline on the basis that he's going to be as good as any of the other drivers on the list in the car. Uh, he's got more potential to progress. And also he comes with that Mercedes assistance, which given Williams' commercial situation and the likely loss of championship position and future funding, they will need the support of Mercedes as far as they can get it. OK, Ben Anderson goes Pascal Verline. Glenn Freeman. My heart says Kubica. And actually, the the Autosport.com editor in me says Kubica because that's a great story for us and it'll be a great <laughs> great thing to talk about all year, a great story for us to follow and it's something that we know the readers are going to be interested in. So that would be, that that is the, the romantic outcome. Unfortunately, as you can probably tell from this discussion, my, my head is telling me that there are too many doubts. I'm happy to revise this opinion if, if Lawrence comes back from following the test next week and says, he was absolutely mega. Me too. He, he nailed the ultra softs because we know that was that those were runs that didn't go very well in Hungary. There's, there's talk of the red flags, but there's also the fact that he did get some clean ultra soft running, and that's a tire he's never used before, so he maybe didn't know how to get the most out of it. But there are too many doubts for me on Kubica. So then it comes down to, for me, Deresta versus Verline. I came very close to agreeing with Ben on the Verline thing, but I think the position that Williams is going to be in next year. Paul Deresta can can do the job that they need to do. As you said, Ed, he probably shouldn't have been booted out of F1 when he was. I think he'll come back a more rounded individual. He's still a quick driver. He still has Mercedes affiliation as well. So if that is in Williams' mind, that could help here as well. Um, so I'm going for Deresta. And I think he'll pleasantly surprise people if he gets the opportunity. 
So that's that's basically one vote for everybody. For for symmetry's sake, I should really go for Daniel Kvyat. But uh, well, you, but, you but, devil's advocate yourself out of that <laughs> argument. Earlier, yeah, I did a very. So I'm a terrible. It'd be a de- massive about turn if you suddenly backed Kvyat. Yeah, I'm not a very capable devil's advocate. I think if we're picking one of those, we wouldn't be picking me. So I agree with everything Glenn said on Kvyat. Actually, I'd I'd really like Williams to sign Kvyat. So I think it'd be a brilliant story. I think we all would. On a personal level, I have a, a huge amount of time for Robert Kvyat. So I think it'd be great for him personally. I think. There's so many reasons why it would be why it would be positive. However, if I'm sat here running a team, I always think you need the strongest results out of your drivers. I think that's very important. And the commercial side does come into it. It has to because you have to pay your staff. You have to pay for your bits you're putting on the car. You have to pay for your various activities. And you so, are running the team, remember? Exactly. So that does come into it. But also there are potential commercial benefits to Duresta and, and Verline as well. And I don't think Kibitza blows them out of the water. I think maybe you're talking about some column inches or virtual column inches and maybe a little bit more overall cash injection but not not massive so it comes down to Deresta versus Verline and actually it's very 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 close between the two I have a tendency to lean towards going for younger drivers uh, as a rule and I, I rate Verline and I, I like him to be in Formula One Stroll plays a part in this in that I would want an experienced driver in there so I'm kind of inching towards Paul Deresta even though my inclination is to go for is to go for Verline, it's almost a coin toss between those two. Yeah, so it, it's between those two, and I think probably actually the stroll factor does slightly give the, the decision to Deresta. It's almost against my against my inclination, but this kind of indicates how difficult it is for Williams, doesn't it? Because Kibitza is the appealing one to go for but there are questions to he's be answered he's the biggest gamble isn't he exactly. that's the thing he's and the best candidate but he's the riskiest candidate exactly and I think what Lawrence says there they'd have to sign him with a with a backstop wouldn't they which is I think if I was to do that then probably I would go with maybe go with Verline as the backstop because then you want to so Duresta out if he doesn't possibly. get the seat yeah, you see that that's how that's oh, this is, this is harsh of, team bossery all, we've got going all on of these, all of these things change change things greatly I think um and so from so from William. Hang on, can I just say it's a good job you're presenting this podcast. Can you be a terrible guest with all this fence sitting? Yeah, there's there's a lot of fence sitting going on. So uh, it just tells you how how close it is. I think I don't think Verline is quite as good as Ocon, and I think probably if you put Deresta and Verline in the car over the season, I think you'll get much the same points all. And I think it, therefore it comes down to the relationship with the team, the balance with Lance Stroll. That's critical. Deresta's already established, isn't he? But based on pure voting numbers, Deresta wins, doesn't he? Because we got two votes to one for other candidates. I think I've spoiled my ballot, to be quite honest. <laughs> I think Kubica wins on with the caveats that he's fully capable because I think all of us would advocate a Kubica signing, wouldn't we? Wouldn't it if, be a brilliant story? If, it, if, if everything turns out in Abu Dhabi to be good and, that's maybe and where fast we- and strong and consistent yeah. And the doubts go away. It's kibitza every time, isn't it? And maybe Williams feels in the position it's in, the roll of the dice is the way to go. Perhaps it is. Perhaps it but is. it's in a good position, isn't it, Williams? Because they can do this test with kibitza. They can find out once and for all what he's capable of. And then if he's capable, they can sign him and it's great. And if he's not, then they can just look at the other options and they're all perfectly credible and strong options. Whatever happens, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting story because there's going to be an interesting driver 
in that Williams. And if it's Robert Kubica, it's going to be a, a fascinating story to follow. And, and good luck to him. Or will Felipe Massa come out of retirement again? Well, I think we can all at assume the, that at that's the last hour. <laughs> There's every chance that that could end up. Perhaps he could be the reserve. Well, we've had our say, but let's leave the last word to the listeners and the readers of Autosport. We asked on our various social media channels, including Facebook and Twitter, which of the four candidates Williams should sign. Uh, Kubica was the overwhelming choice with 57% of the support. Pascal Verlein, 19%. Paul rest a third choice with 14%. And poor old Daniel Kvyat getting about as much support as he did on this podcast with just a 10%. Now, there were a few curveball suggestions in there, such as people asking why Felipe Nazza was not being considered. After all, he's a former Williams reserve driver, did some running for them. But I think the factor of budget is relevant there, and I don't think Williams were overwhelmingly convinced with Nazza, despite the fact that he drove well for Sauber in his years with that team. So he's not on Williams' list. Joseph Newgarden, the IndyCar champion, also cropped up a few times, but he's a driver who, given his status, will warrant paying. Very unlikely to bring a significant financial package, and would rightly or wrongly be seen as a risk, good a driver as he is. So these are among the many drivers who, who are not candidates. So thanks very much to everybody who uh, contributed their opinions. If you head to Twitter, we're at Autospot on Twitter, you can uh, maybe give your feedback in response to the arguments in this podcast. Now, I'm going to have to interrupt myself here because unusually for a podcast, we do actually have some news just in. Breaking now, well, it's on Tuesday afternoon, so it'll be in the past for you, so you'll already know this, is the news that Sergei Sorotkin is going to drive for Williams on the other day of the Abu Dhabi tyre test. Now, Sorotkin, of course, he's affiliated with Renault this year. He's got a history with Sauber as well. Remember, he was due to race them in 2014, but ended up being a, being a reserve driver. Race winner in GP2 and Formula Renault 3.5, very strong driver on his day. He's got enough budget behind him. He could be a contender for the drive. At this stage, it perhaps looks more like he's in the mix for the third driver role that Williams is looking to fill with a driver with some budget that could include some Friday running. But we'll keep an eye on that situation, find out a little bit more about it. So, so keep an eye on our on uh, autosport.com for the latest on Sorotkin's involvement with Williams. Could he be a sudden up-on-the-rails contender to join the four we've already discussed? So thanks very much to Lawrence Barreto, Ben Anderson and Glenn Freeman for their insights. Remember, you can check autosport.com for all the latest from the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix this weekend. And Lawrence Barreto will be out there for the test. Robert Kubica is driving on Tuesday, the first day of the two-day Pirelli tyre test. And we'll have live coverage on autosport.com of that. Also, check out our Plus subscriber area where you can read various in-depth articles, columns, features by the likes of Ben Anderson, including his ever-controversial driver ratings. Also, check out Autosport Mag out every Thursday and sister title F1 Racing. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music.
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hey guys, gut check. If your six-pack abs are covered with flab, it's time to cut the fat. Lose weight the easy way with Nutrisystem for men. Now delivering hearty inspirations meals that fill you up without letting you down. We're talking bigger lunches and bigger dinners packed with protein to control hunger for up to five hours. From savory bourbon chicken to mouth-watering meatloaf, they're exactly what a man's body needs to power through the day. You get breakfasts, lunches, dinners, and snacks all fully prepared, totally delicious and delivered free to your door. No salads, no juices, just real food for serious appetites. Order today and get all new fuel shakes for men. They're made with the key ingredient Velocitol that doubles the power of protein to help you maintain muscle mass while losing weight and feeling satisfied. Don't wait any longer. Order now for a simple way to lose weight, build strength, boost energy, and burn fat. Go to Nutrisystem.com slash protein to lock in your special deal. Offer restrictions apply. See website for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.